This recording was originally a live conversation which took place at Founders Tap back in October 2022. When you're freshly out of university, you, you can code very well, but like to really build the, the product from the tech side in a scalable way, this just needs a lot of experience. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. So Tanya, you're the co-founder at Amplo, a no-code platform that makes AI easy and accessible to service and operation departments. Before we talk about your company, I actually want to start with your personal background. You studied mechanical engineering at the ETH in Zurich. And at one point, you were actually doing your master's, working as a teaching assistant at ETH, and also as a project manager at Mercedes-Benz. That's quite a workload. Were you always an overachiever? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I think on LinkedIn, everything always looks looks so nice. But um, I think I was um, very happy to to learn like very early on in my professional life that actually like failure is okay. So it's okay to fail and you can redo stuff. That's why probably my LinkedIn also looks like that I did my master simultaneously with my with my project um, manager. Um, uh, intern um, position at Daimler but actually this wasn't the case so um, yeah so maybe I can tell you a little bit about that that failure like very early yes, on please. in my professional life so um, when I was in high school um, I wanted to become a ski instructor so this was like the thing that you do in Switzerland you know when you have uh, a lot of holidays then you go up the mountains and work as a ski instructor and um, to do so, you need to do um, like one week of education and then you have a test in the end. And the test was about like your skills in skiing. And then you also had like um, um, a practical test where you had, you had kids and you had to teach them. And uh, actually in the test, in the skills test where I had to ski, this was fine. But in the methodical test where I had to teach the kids... I was so, so, so nervous that I forgot my skis downstairs. Oh, no. <laughs> so obviously I failed that test. I think I was one of the only one that failed it. And I was so embarrassed that I, could, I couldn't talk about it. So um, there, then I, I worked as a ski instructor. This was fine. You didn't have to pass the test. You, you were still able to, to teach. And then like, and yet at the end of the season, I had to redo that test. And only as I passed the test, I could really talk about it. So there I really learned that it's okay to fail and just retry. So, um, and this was a similar story with my masters. Um, yeah, so normally a masters at ETH takes one and a half year. Uh, I did mine in three years because uh, I uh, dropped my first master thesis. So uh, that's why it looks very nice on LinkedIn, but uh, normally uh, the story behind it is a, li a little bit deeper. But I think, I, yeah, I learned a lot about that. I think that's a great life lesson that you learned along the way and that you can also share with us today. So, Thank you for, okay. for doing that. <laughs> Before you then actually started your own company, you worked for the ETH spin-off and startup themselves, 90 Labs. Did that serve as an inspiration for you to really embark yourself on the entrepreneurial path or career? Yeah, totally. So there, 
Um, I joined like as the 18th employee, so not super early, but uh, we were still very small and not a lot of processes. So I really had the feeling all the time that I was like a part of the team and that I could really shape the company. So this was super cool. Also, those three co-founders from 90 Labs, I think they did it very well in like empowering the employees and make them aware that they can really shape the company. So there I learned a lot in those two years. And at some point when we grew, of course, then I felt it a little bit that as an employee, you can't influence like all the decisions anymore, obviously. So I really had there the, the, the wish to, to start my own company. But uh, yeah, when you start to look for it, normally there need to happen a lot of uh, coincidences that, that it really happens because uh, yeah, this we talk about later, but I think the team is always super important. So it's hard to start on your own, but uh, yeah, it was an inspiration. I can imagine that must have been a really tough decision, right? A fast growing ETH spin-off, great startup company, amazing career path in front of you, probably with some nice stock options mm -hmm. to then decide and say, hey, I leave all of that and I start my own company. What were your thoughts and maybe also fears back then? Yeah, so I think it wasn't about like the stock options or the, the option to grow. It was more like really, I, I felt like super loyal to, to the whole team and we grew together. We were there like actively raising the new round. So it's always a little bit as an employee, when you leave a company, when you know they're in fundraising, it's it's not a good sign. And we had some some people that left before me as well. So I knew it might influence that, that whole process. Mm, but what I did then is like I, I met Oli and Niels and I started to work like one day a week with them. And so we could get to know each other. And I always told 90 Labs that I did that. So they knew that probably if that works out, that I'm going to, to leave the company. So for me, it was just super important to, yeah, to tell them from the beginning that I'm looking yeah, into different things. So the transparent and open communication is probably a, a key takeaway here that worked well for you. Yeah, totally. Mm. And you mentioned uh, the other two co-founders of Amplo, and that's exactly <laughs> what we want to talk about today, right? So it all starts with the founding team. And mm -hmm. the first question is, of course, how can you tell if someone is a good co-founder or not to embark on that entrepreneurial journey together? Yeah, I think this is a hard question. I think you can't say like, there's a this one is a good founder and this one is a bad founder. But um, I think the team really is the like the key ingredient that this works out fine. So you actually want to to find a team that is um, very similar in the values, I would say, but very different in skill sets. And it's it's a very it's it's super hard to to find that combination because you want to be an expert in one field, but you also want to learn from the others. And actually, you always want to learn in general, right? So uh, yeah, that's a it's a tough call. <laughs> so to to summarize it, it's basically shared values but complementary skill set, right? That you were looking for. This sounds great in theory, but how does that actually show in practice? Did, did <laughs> was there any moment where you say? now it really clicked and I know that I do want to start a company with these people or how was that developing over time? 
Yeah, that, that's a good question. So I think since we had that one day a week where we could work together, you realized quite well if you if you like each other or you don't don't like each other. Each other. So the values they they were um, easy to or for me they were easy to to check. I think, but um, the skill set. I mean, we're three mechanical engineers, so very similar from from the uh, engineering background. But uh, like from the skill set, very different. I think Niels is very good in, in coding and machine learning. So this is like his absolute um, favorite subject. Then Oli is very good in like, how can you implement the technical stuff at the customers? Like that combination between, between tech and, and customer. And uh, yeah, then, then <laughs> it's me, <laughs> I think. Uh, for me, it's very easy to to talk to people and to get a lot of insights really fast, and also like to accelerate the sales process um, because it's just easier to to enter when when you like to talk to people. Yeah. So despite the same background, still a very clear split of roles and yeah. responsibilities. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Many people also think about where could I potentially find co-founders, and obviously you land in your friends' network, maybe even your romantic partner. Have you also thought about you know these parts because there are some hard opinions about that where people say you should absolutely not found a company with your friends or people close to you, but others say it's the best thing in the world. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think I also have a very hard op opinion on that. So um, for me, it was very clear in the beginning. For example, I don't want to involve my family or my mom and dad in, like financially in the startup because. Yeah, I, I was just, I didn't want to have that pressure that uh, if it doesn't work out, that they suffer. So this was for me a no-go. But of course, uh, with my, my family, I always knew, for example, if, if it doesn't work out, I can go live with them, for example. So the support was different. Um, then, like, founding um, a startup with, with a romantic partner, mm, I think for me, this is super hard because the relationship, like, the, this founder relationship this is already like a real relationship where you have to work on it so for example we have like uh, every two weeks one-on-ones where we talk to each other and say what's good what's not good and it's really we work so hard on that founder relationship mm -hmm. that I think it's too much to have the, the romantic aspect in it as well <laughs> Yeah. I mean, in the end, it's probably also personal preference to totally. a certain degree, but it's very interesting to see how there are so many hard opinions on that one. It's rather black and white than a gray area for mm -hmm. many people. How do you actually then meet your two co-founders? Like, did you have any, you know, from, from your studies, any, any background there, or did you really meet and then just started the company together? Mm -hmm. um, I knew Ollie from, from the bachelors, but I mean, at, at DTH in mechanical engineering, 550 students started at that time, so I knew him. Uh, he was always the guy with the mustache, mustache and the motorcycle. Talking about personal branding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, we weren't friends. But um, what I did when, when I knew um, I wanted to, to found my own own company what it is it did is like really share that in my network 
and say like, okay, hey, I'm looking for an opportunity. If you know someone that knows someone, just let me know. And um, then actually we got introduced to a mutual friend that afterwards also became uh, our business angel. He was coaching them on the sales side. And then he called me afterwards. It was a Sunday because he did the, those whisperer coaching. Nice. <laughs> um, so so uh, he called me on a Sunday like, Tanya, I found your like the perfect match you need to meet them and then we met and it it was uh, yeah it was cool <laughs> amazing is there a certain thing like the right amount of co-founders from your perspective or asked differently is there any number that is too big to start a company together or too small mm -hmm. yeah so i mean there i always had a hard opinion as well and i think this changed changed a lot um, in the last couple of months. So for me, it was always like optimal to have three people. I always thought like that's the perfect number. Like uh, when you live together with friends, it's always three, right? <laughs> so, uh, but what I learned now and what I also learned from the employee experience with our very early employees, I actually would love to have more co-founders because I think as a co-founder and as an early startup employee, it's always a, you're a little bit differently incentivized obviously so um i think the more the merrier because then you have more people that like do everything for it yeah so more like four or five or even more than that yeah i think five is a good good number yeah. okay <laughs> and in, in that regard i mean there are some examples right i think yoko is an example where they do that or even seven cents uh, robotics so there are multiple examples with a lot of co-founders way more than just the three Exactly. And I mean, we have three of, of the five co-founders from Yoko invested in us. So, uh, Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> you also mentioned that you started working together with one day a week. So you basically started working part time. Is that a good setup to get started or is that something that you would change now looking back and go full time even earlier than you did? Mm -hmm. mm, yeah. So I think when we started, um, since we didn't have a lot of experience or, or a lot of working experience and we had to somehow finance our lives, we had to do that that way. But I think if, if it is possible to go full time, I think it's absolutely necessary to to um, succeed in like the funding rounds, for example. So uh, I think it was good for, for that time. But as soon as we went out like raising money, we knew that we need to go full time. So that was also clear for you. And then the other question is, of course, how do you split the share amongst the co-founders? Mm -hmm. Because from my understanding, you joined a bit later than the other two founders, right? Mm -hmm. So did that change anything in the way that you structure and split the shares or how did you solve that? Yeah, so there I think we all are. So since it was before the first financing round, it's a, it's a little bit different. So um, there I'm a big fan of like having it shared equally. And equally, of course, they worked on it for over a year. So this wasn't the, the most fair solution, of, uh, obviously. But uh, I think we made a very, very um, fair deal at, that everyone feels super involved. But I think the best thing always is like split it equally. And then you not only invest your time, right? You all work full time mm -hmm. now, of course, in the company. But some people might also invest their own money or money from family mm -hmm. and friends that they take out as a loan and then invest in the company. Mm -hmm. Is that also a challenge that you faced when splitting the shares or was that not a big topic? 
No, it, it, this was really not a big topic from, from our side. I think it can become a big topic, but I think it's it's very good when you're in the beginning, when you're very pragmatic. And I mean, we all knew, for example, if we would go to a corporate, this is just a different thing anyhow. So uh, yeah, we didn't make a big fuss about that. Yeah. And no need to share, but of course people are very interested. You <laughs> have the shares in the company, so you have yeah. a big upside. Yeah. You still, of course, have living expenses and bills to pay. Is there a good range of salary that you say you should pay yourself as co-founders in the early phase? Mm-hmm. No need to give specific numbers, but maybe yeah. a range that you can share because that stuff always helps people to compare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very good question. I think, I mean, since you work... You, I mean, as a co-founder, you just work a lot. Um, so I think it is nice if you don't have to like um, really also like super focus on on your spendings, and you can't go out during lunch to to go eat somewhere once a week, for example. So I think then it gets really hard because you always have to think about that as well. So I think a, a good range is just that you can cover the living expenses but don't live with a lot of luxury. I think that's, yeah. I remember back in it, but that was like uh, seven years ago uh, when I started Jim Hopper. Uh, my first company there, we paid each other 3000 per person per month, mm-hmm. which was on the lower end because mm-hmm. I then moved in back with my parents to save on, on mm-hmm. rent. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I fully support what you said. Cover your living expenses, but not more than that. So probably anywhere from a three to five case, probably mm-hmm. a normal it's range. A normal, yeah. One thing you also have to think about, you are very pragmatic, you are excited about the start of the journey, but you of course also have to think about what if this doesn't work out? What if one founder wants to leave or if Mm -hmm. we have to let go of a founder? Did you also talk and think about that scenario? Um, Yeah, so we're talking talking about it, um, not like in the sense of... of, um, leaving but um like in the sense of that we're now very committed to Omplo and if there is a change in our feelings that we that we talk about it and um I think I know I know it's also in the shareholders agreement we have like a clause what happens when someone wants to leave so it's usually I guess the traditional vesting schedule right where you say after one year, you have to give back all the shares and then they vest over a certain period, over exactly. four years probably. Exactly. Yeah. Because, yeah, and I mean, it also makes sense, you know, when you are when you have someone that is out of the company but still holds like 20 or 30% of the shares, then it's just very un, un, in, uh, or not interesting anymore for, for investors because it's like that uh shares yeah. yeah i mean that can seriously kill your company yeah. in the future right mm. so very important it's not a comfortable conversation to have but better have it in the good times than in the bad times totally yeah so now you have the co-founding team together mm-hmm. you have split the shares you know how much salary you're going to pay each other you're ready to to give it your all mm-hmm. and at a certain point in time you then realize oh we actually need more people than just the three of us to get the job done when is that moment? How did that feel when he said, hey, now we're ready to hire the first employees? Was that quite early on in the journey? 
Yeah, um, yeah. So we did it very early. So you know, when we raised our, we did like a small angel round in last December, and there, like, money was super cheap. So it was very easy to convince those angels. And then we thought, like, okay, yeah, this this is easy. We just raised our our pre-seed afterwards, so we can already start hiring people um, with like really a, a small converted convertible note from from those angels so i think there we took a huge risk to to already hire them um but then in the end it was super nice because they had time we had time to onboard them in in a time where it wasn't that busy like over like uh, yeah big like over christmas beginning of the year it's always a little bit um, easier when it comes to to customers so we could onboard them that they're now like uh, working uh, perfectly. <laughs> Is that something that you would do again? That uh, that's a very good question. I think it really it really really depends on the market. If if money is that cheap from from to get, then yes, I would totally do it again. Now, of course, we're in a little bit a different situation now. I wouldn't recommend uh, to do so. We're also going to talk about that because mm -hmm. even in the current difficult market environment, you still raised another round. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about that in a minute. What I want to also talk about first is the hires that you made. What were the roles? What were the first hires that you decided to go for to grow the company? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, since Oli and me more worked on sales and, and Niels on product, we knew that we need um, more people from from the product side. So what we hired then was a full stack um, engineer. She's now working like on the on the front end and back end and a machine learning intern. And um, now we just, I'm really excited. He starts next week. We, we hired a um, senior software architect, which already uh, sold to, to companies. So uh, he's very experienced in, in building a scalable product. And this is something I think we learned on the way very well because when you're uh, freshly out of university, you you can code very well, but like to really build the the product from the tech side in a scalable way, this just needs a lot of experience. And and now we we have someone that comes on on Monday and really uh, puts a lot of effort in that it's scalable and that we also can scale the, the tech team. So this sounds like a very strategic approach from your side to say, hey, we need this in order to go where we want to go in one, two, three years from now. Yeah, uh, so to to be honest with you, this was also not our idea. Uh, <laughs> that was, um, we then had had the lead investor telling us like, uh, they they would do it, think about it. And then we thought about it and thought like, okay, yeah, that's, that's actually the right way to go. But of course, the first senior hire is always... Uh, a tricky one. And on top of that, it sounds all very engineering and developer focused. What about the sales and marketing part? Is that also something that you would hire early on? Or is that something where you say, oh, this can wait a bit. We first have to figure it out ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we have um, we have Tilo. He's our business development um, guy. He's coming from, from Unison Gallen. So we're super lucky to have him. And he's really... He likes to make his like hands dirty, you know. He's really doing founders' work as well, and uh, I think it's not easy to find someone in sales that wants to do that product market um, fit, pre-product market fit um, work. But uh, he really likes to do it. But of course, it's also um, 
challenging for him because he knows he, he's one of the first employees. He can really shape it and everything, but it's just not a, a, a product which you can sell directly like, uh, I don't know, like a croissant in the morning. So uh, yeah, for, for him, it's, it's so, so hard, but uh, we're really happy to, to have him since we have that engineering background. So this sounds like you found the right people for the right challenges at the moment. How did you find them? Were there any specific networks or platforms that you used to find them? Mm-hmm. Mm, so for for the first uh, three hires, the, it was only we only um, put it on LinkedIn, and then we had great applicants. So uh, there we were, were very lucky, I think. And um, the the senior guy, he was over in an intro, yeah. So got it. Yeah. And then senior people, of course, for many entrepreneurs probably here in the room, they think, oh, senior, that sounds very expensive. Mm -hmm. How do you compensate them? Because you probably cannot or don't want to pay the market salaries. So how do you compensate them to make up for that potential loss? Yeah, so the good thing is with senior people, they most of the time they they already earned like a lot of money and most of the people, not of course, not everyone, but uh, they realize that, okay, earning money is actually not the thing that makes me happy at work. So I think there, when you find someone that is more incentivized by like he he or she can shape the company, they, they can grow, um, it, it scales fast, they learn a lot, they have a lot of... Um, of uh, team members they can take care of so so i think it's more like the daily business with with uh, yeah where you can incentivize them them with and of course then you also have a nice uh, pay up and uh, and uh, okay salary yeah <laughs> got it and one last part when it comes to the team that of course also changes as you hire more people is your internal communication structure. Mm-hmm. That's a big challenge for many startups because when you're starting out as three co-founders, you just constantly talk to each other. You're always up to date. You know what's going on. Mm-hmm. As soon as you have more people, it gets way more complex. So mm-hmm. how do you organize and also communicate at Ampla today to still stay an efficient company, but also ensure that everyone has the required information? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is something that that we should look at at it um, for sure. Also, like over over the the Christmas weeks, but um, at the moment we just have like one one office where like everything is mixed, so everyone hears every conversation. So um, we don't have phone booths at the moment. We don't have a meeting room, so it's very open, and. Um, also, we are very open. So one of our co-founders, he's Dutch, and I had to to uh, learn that in the beginning that he's very direct. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think our whole um, company culture is just very direct. And at the moment, we're 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 seven people, and all of us they they can handle like very direct feedback. But we all know that as soon as we hire someone that can't handle that very well, we have to change. Um, yeah, but I think uh, we have, yeah, we just have that very open feedback culture. And then we have a lot of people in the office. This is also very nice. So normally tech people love to be in home office, but this we don't experience actually, because uh, this is also something I would, would suggest is like really having a nice infrastructure, like a nice work space for the tech team so that they 
uh, love to code in the office rather than at home. So you you can make sure they they enjoyed uh, their stay in the office. What what's your tip there? What is uh, the nice setup that you offer them? We all want to know. Yeah. So. It, this is now really for the tech team. I learned today during lunch. So actually, when you have 32 RAM, it's nicer to code because <laughs> then it doesn't <laughs> need so much refresh when you when you code something and try it again. So uh, yeah, you save a lot of time and you don't lose focus that easily. So uh, a laptop with a 32 RAM, gigabyte RAM, apparently is is a nice thing for the developers. And uh, for the sales team, a good coffee machine. Got it. Yeah, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, now I also want to talk about fundraising because you closed a 1.6 million pre-seed round in September. So basically, when all hell broke loose in the stock market and everything was like crashing, basically. Mm -hmm. So my first question is, how did you pull that off in this difficult market environment? I know it's probably months of work that go before that, but still. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to close around in that environment. No, no. I think um, there are multiple things that that come together. For example, first we had our great angel investors that knew a lot of uh, early stage investors. So I think this is always a good thing when you when someone invests in your company. Try to find out if they know a lot of people that could um, invest in the next round and really ask them like openly and if they are already open to, to do an intro before you actually then go out to race. So This is actually a very interesting point. I think many don't think about that because the investor's main job is to help you get to the next financing round. Mm -hmm. And I think if you see it that way, then you start to ask different questions and you mm -hmm. start to pick other investors with this network to maybe the next VCs who could then do the professional round, etc. Mm -hmm. And I think that is crucial to consider when, when you do the fundraising part as a startup. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. So it's a really, I mean, in the, in the beginning, you're always super excited because someone wants to invest in your company and believes in you, then you're, you have so, uh, you're so happy and you don't think about it. But I think, yeah, that's a, that's a good tip. This, this is the first thing. And the other thing is mm, we went out like very, very structured. So we knew that we, we go out in, in March, like going out means we have the pitch deck available. We know exactly how much money we want to raise. We know um, for what we want to use the money. We know what our product is. We know to whom we sell. So this was the thing we had. And then we had like a list of VCs. And there we just tried to get either an intro. Um, yeah, actually over, over an intro or over events. So we had that list, this list of VCs and then I, this I'm not sure if I would do this again. I put them on a very tight um, time schedule. So I told them like, okay, in this week you can have the first call with, with me. Then in the next week you can have the, the call with the founding team. Then um, you can go into your like small due diligence. And then at that date, we want to have the term sheet. Why would you not do it again or at least so, think about it again. Yeah, so I was very optimistic on the timeline. So I communicated this uh, date <laughs> where I would love to have the term sheet signed. 
And um, then in the end, it, did, it, it wasn't that date, so it was a little bit later. And I think this can be very dangerous because VCs talk to each other and when they know you actually wanted to sign the term sheet and you didn't sign, this can also, I mean, this can... Yeah, that could be a very bad sign, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> that could be a very bad sign. What, what would you change now looking back? Would you set not, no timeline or no deadline at all or just allow them more time for the different stages? Yeah, I think more time for the different stages. Okay. Mm. And was the, the current market condition, you know, after COVID and now with mm -hmm. the market meltdown, the way lower multiples for software businesses, mm -hmm. was that a topic at all during your conversations? Yeah, it, it it was a topic, but since we're so we were so early stage, and and you see like all the uh, you see a lot of statistics that the early stage companies weren't that much um, harmed by by that downturn in the beginning of the year. But um, I just tried to not think about it. So for me, it's never an option. Or, but that's also like personal uh, preference. I think for me, it's never an option that I have um, a excuse that it didn't work out. So I, I try to not think about that. Yeah. And if, if it, they brought it up, I could imagine that investors also trying to to gain some leverage, trying to say, "Oh, your valuation is a bit lower now because mm -hmm. of the current market conditions." How were you able to push back a bit as a startup and say, no, no, we actually have a higher valuation and that's what you should sign up for? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we just created FOMO. <laughs> How do you do that? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, then you at, at some point you have like your, your VCs you would love to have a term sheet from. And then, of course, they start to ask you questions like, with whom are you talking? And, and then you just... You never lie, but you just um, make yourself very. Uh, how do you say? Yeah, like like a little bit like hard to get, mm -hmm. and then it, this this actually works quite fine. And how do you do that? Do you just reply a bit later to their emails, or do you say that you're talking to these other fancy VCs? Mm. How do you do that? Yeah. So what I did, I. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> we want to know the dirty tricks. <laughs> So uh, <laughs> I traveled to Berlin and one of my best friends, uh, she lives in Berlin. So it was more like uh, meeting my friend there. But of course, all the VCs thought I'm traveling to Berlin to talk to all the, the Berlin VCs. Um, so <laughs> I think that, that was a, a smart move. And of course, I, I also had some, some meetings with investors. But uh, I mean, you saw it now. Uh, we didn't have any Berlin VC now on board. But uh, I think it's always good to, to take the Berlin VCs because there are so many of it. This is also a good sign. So the Swiss VCs can't know all of them. So... Uh, yeah, they don't know exactly with whom you're talking to. Sneaky strategy. I like that. <laughs> now for the seed round, you actually travel to Silicon Valley. Or what's the plan? <laughs> we won't disclose yet. That's fine. <laughs> Maybe my, my other question is, um, you know, how did you determine how much money you wanted to raise? Was that more opportunistic driven? As you said, for the first round that you did, where you said, hey, money was just very cheap. Mm -hmm. We just got it in to hire the first people. Or was it way different in, in that pre-seed stage where you said, this is what we want to do, this is how much money we need, and then we probably add 30 50% on top of that because it's always going to cost more than we think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, 
So yeah, we really tried to to or we took uh, took a lot of time to really figure out how much money we need in the next uh, 18 months to to scale, and then there was a number next to it, and then we knew okay we need to to raise so much money in order to grow that quickly in the next month. Um, so there it was a strategy behind. But um, so then you go out with that numbers and what normally VCs do, they always have a target on like how much shares they want to get. And uh, then also it influences the valuation. So, yeah, I think you can go out with a number where you can really um, say, okay, we need this amount of money to achieve those milestones. And then, yeah, then it's a negotiation, of course. And it's mostly about the valuation. Mm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Is there also a certain range where you say that's a good, a healthy amount to give away for uh, as a startup? Like often you read 10 to 20 or even 25%. Mm -hmm. Would you mm -hmm. say that's a good range or should it be higher or lower than that? Yeah, I think um, I always had the number in mind between 12 and 20%. Yeah, yeah. perfect. Mm. And maybe two last takeaways in, in that process that took you about six months in total, mm -hmm. raising funds in, you know, not an easy market environment. Mm -hmm. Tell us one thing that was easier than expected and one thing that was harder than expected. Mm -hmm. um, easier than expected is like everyone wants to talk to you. So also when funds don't deploy money at the moment, they still talk to a lot of startups because they don't want to... You, they don't want that you perceive them as a fund that uh, already deployed all the money. So they talk to you all, uh, yeah, they talk to everyone. So this was very easy to, to talk to them. And then what was harder is like to really find someone that is like really a fan of your team and your product and takes time to look Edit. I think we, we found like great VCs that really took the time to, to look at it. And they are now also like experts in the field, which I really like. Um, but uh, this is hard. This is hard to find, I think. So to summarize, maybe it's easy to talk to them, but hard to keep their attention. Mm -hmm. Cool. I like that. <laughs> so before we open for questions, think about them. If you have some questions for, for us here, uh, feel free to ask them. We're first going to do a quick wrap-up with some rapid-fire questions. Mm -hmm. So what I want to ask you is either I give you different options to choose from or a quick question you have to answer in one sentence. You ready? Mm -hmm. The first one, <laughs> founder or startup employee? Founder. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Product or sales? Product. <laughs> Beer or wine? Wine. Bootstrapping or VC money? VC money. Profitable SME or high growth exit? High growth exit. I mean, that's what you signed up for with the investors. <laughs> yeah. And the last one, lakes or mountains? Mountains. Clear choice for you. <laughs> cool. Great. Um, let's wrap it up here. We have still plenty of time to talk, to network with some snacks and drinks over there. Thank you all so much for joining and especially you, Tanya, for being our guest and for the very open and insightful learnings that you shared with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. 
This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.